Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, February 1st. We begin with a look at the concept of social bubbles. We speak with a professor of anthropology about the history of bubbles well before the pandemic, the purpose they have served in the past, and why they inevitably break down. With last Friday's announcement of the easing of some of the COVID restrictions in our province, we'll look at one sector that's not too happy with these new rules. Global reporter Carolyn Curry de Castillo explains why the staff and owners of local gyms are taking issue with these changes. Are Canada's vaccination goals still achievable with the many delays in delivery from the pharmaceutical companies? We get the thoughts of a professor in emerging viruses from the University of Manitoba. And finally, it's a different and wild take on Valentine's Day. We hear about the Calgary Zoo's unique plans for Valentine's Day called Show the Love. So when the pandemic first started, the term social bubbles became part of our everyday language. As the virus continues to spread, though, we were forced to make those bubbles smaller and smaller, but still calling them bubbles. Our current crisis, not the only instance of that, though. Justin Jennings is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Toronto and joins us now with a little bit of discussion around the terminology. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. Let's talk about social bubbles. This is not a new concept, you say? Uh, no, I think basically uh, ever since the end of the Ice Age, we've been dealing with bubbles, thinking about bubbles, trying to make bubbles at work and having these bubbles burst. So the term might be uh, new, but certainly the condition is uh, ongoing. Okay, so, so give us some examples of these previous bubbles, because I know that in 2021 we used the term a lot. When were they used previously? Well, you know... What I like to, to look at as an archaeologist is the last um, few thousand years of change. So every time there's a big change. So, for example, let's say you go into the first villages or start farming or begin to do cities, states. Whenever there's a big change in life, what tends to happen, uh, we find, is that people kind of turtle. Is that they, instead of facing that challenge head on, we decide to say, okay, who do we trust uh, who do we work with the best? We're going to go ahead and just be with those folks and only be with those folks because everything else is too scary, too crazy out there. So um, more or less, what, what I think we see time and time again is that when we're faced with great challenges, we don't sort of rise up to those those occasions. We oftentimes just say, hey, no, I, I'm just going to try to just hope it passes. And, of course, it never does. And we finally have to, to make uh, big changes in our lives. As we look back at history, Professor, can you also look at, you know, sickness, illness, moving from, you know, a small community to another, and and maybe that's why the bubbling was a thing back then as well, trying to keep that out? Yeah, I mean, certainly I think the the, the notion is, um, so, so for example, uh, one thing I looked at was, the, the ancient uh, Huron here, the ancestral Huron here in Toronto, where I'm uh, located. And as soon as you started having, you know, you start introducing things like um, like maize and and, uh, and you have bigger and bigger communities, that what happens, you have people get worried. They get worried about outsiders. They get worried about disease. They get worried about violence. And so whenever you see all these changes happening, uh, the ancestral Huron, just like any other group in Canada or across the world, yeah, you just get afraid, and you and you and like I said, you turtle. You go ahead and say, "Okay, who can I trust? Who can I do?" And so you don't you don't try to face those challenges. So it's advantageous, and it serves the individuals within these group with a common interest. But the bubbles break down, and is that because of the individuals' needs and, and the way they might be changing over that time? Yeah, I mean that's 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 why what it, what I think is happening in the sense that that from a short term perspective, it sounds great. You know, you're saying, okay, um, I'm just going to 
going to be with the people that I know. I'm just going to do what I normally do. I'm going to shut out the outside world. But, but yeah, what you know today, certainly, uh, you know, I don't know about your bubbles, um, but my bubbles broke down fairly quickly, right? You know, we had a sink that uh, had to get fixed. We had a plumber come in. We had, you know, uh, you're walking in the park, you, you meet someone, and they get too close. Uh, groceries, all these interactions that you have in, in our society today, you have the same sort of problems over the last 20,000 years is that we're so interconnected, you can't bubble. Um, and so when you try, as much as you try to just bring in those people in that circle of trust, it breaks down so that it's not a good long-term solution to any kind of problem, be it pandemic or otherwise. So if you've looked back in history and, and you see that, you know, this bubbling concept works to a degree, but not really overall and not for long-term, what have you seen that is a, a way or a shift of thinking perhaps that might work for us as we continue through this pandemic? Yeah, that's always a great challenge. You can see a lot of instances in the past. Okay, what what's been done? But of course, we've had nothing, you know, quite like, um, um, you know, COVID nineteen. Um, but but what I do see, you can look at, for example, are ways. There, there's lots of examples. For example, of federations, sort of ways in which you can do parallel. Um, processing where you can do things in larger groups without a lot of interaction between those groups. So um, I don't know quite the answer. We're so interconnected. We're so globalized. It's so difficult today. It's hard to go back and say, oh, let's look at ancestral Haran or let's look at ancient Mesopotamia. But I do think there are other examples of people living in larger groups that are more, that are, that are, that are more bubbled in some way. So in, in a sense, you may be saying, okay, is that what we did is maybe go too small, go too small just for the household because that would never work. Can we look at larger bubbles, if you will, um, that, that might be more effective? And what I, what I just haven't seen as an archaeologist saying is, hey, we haven't actually been um, very creative in terms of thinking through this um, on a national or certainly international level, because I don't think, yeah, that these, these small household bubbles, we've seen that, that they're just not effective. They burst. You mentioned the small household bubbles, and, you know, we think it's challenging here, but also you look around the globe, and in a lot of places in the world, their living arrangements are considerably different. They might have a, a couple of families or maybe even a few generations. So I, I think that this is an experience that we've all had in a different way. We share the experience, but it's certainly different across the globe, isn't it? Yeah, it'd be interesting. It'd be fascinating to me in the next few years as more studies come out about what happens in different places. You know, that if you have these intergenerational households, they've been quite vulnerable in some sense, uh, you know, well, certainly in terms of infection, infection moving through those households. But also, you know, what's, what about the rates of depression? What about some of the other social costs of COVID? Have those been less? So, so I think it's going to be quite interesting. Hopefully we do that is look at different kinds of family structures, government structures, social structures, and try to understand, okay, what actually worked in terms of not just the spread of disease, but some of the other ancillary costs, these horrible costs of COVID. If you could, Professor, you know, give one tip to the federal government, say, you know, how would you look at it, particularly as we look at, you know, traveling outside of our, our own borders? Is that is that a smart way to look to, to shut things down and keep us at least bubbled within our country? Uh, yeah, I would think so. You know, I, 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 you know, in some ways, uh, what we're looking at is, you know, short term, you know, keeping the keeping the virus levels down and, and uh, not moving across borders makes a lot of sense. Um, what I'm more interested in, in some sense, is not so much those sort of global solutions or local solutions, is that, um, or sorry, the household solutions, but sort of 
what about in between? Are there kind of in between ideas that we can go ahead and look at that we can provide people some of that freedom, those interconnections, because of the psychological and the social costs mm-hmm. of, of this, that 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 don't um, you know lead to to the um, you know to the virus going out of control? I mean, it's, like I said, I'm an archaeologist. Yeah. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a government specialist. But what I what I am seeing though is that is uh, you know what I'm suggesting though is this very sort of tight restrictions that everyone seems to, you know, be glom onto because, hey, it seems like it's a, the logical thing to do. Uh, just go down your household or just a pair of households. That isn't a very sustainable mm-hmm. um, way of dealing with, um, with, 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 with a challenge like the pandemic where, I, where, where larger challenge, changes are likely needed. Certainly looking at it from a different angle. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time, Justin. Well, thank you very much. That is Justin Jennings, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Toronto. The Alberta government easing some restrictions for indoor dining and gyms at this point as of February 8th, but that does not mean it's business as usual. In fact, for fitness centres, it means something completely different. With some details, we're joined now by Global News reporter Carolyn Curry de Castillo to talk about some of those details. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, can you break it down a bit more for us? We know things will change February 8th. Fingers crossed that the, the numbers will stay the same and, and that's the plan. So what will that look like? Well, as you know, indoor fitness facilities have been closed to people that want to work out since the middle of December in an effort to slow the spread of COVID-19. But on Friday, the province announced that come February 8th, gyms will be allowed to reopen. But of course, it came with that catch. It can only be for one-on-one training with appointments. And some gym owners say those remaining restrictions on indoor fitness don't really help them because at 60 to 100 bucks an hour, most people won't even be able to afford the price of fitness. So you, you've heard actually from some gym owners, they would like to uh, perhaps go back to uh, what we were in November. Or what, are you, what are you hearing as far as what they'd like to see if they had their wishes? Well, some of them are saying that they they have taken many measures to keep their facilities safe. Um, Thousands of dollars have been spent on uh, ventilation systems, on shields. And, of course, uh, they'd be planning to, they'd be wanting to open with reduced capacity as well. So they're saying they they have proven that they can do it safely and that they would like to, to the opportunity to, to do that again. Now, gyms that are already one-on-one, that's just great news for them. But for the the bigger facilities, I mean, do they even have enough trainers to be able to pull off a a one-on-one situation? Or would that mean they'd actually even have to hire more? What does that look like? Yeah, Yeah, the logistics here just haven't been worked out yet when it comes to something um, like that for these these places. I mean, they're just still hoping that um, they will be able to go to a reduced uh, number capacity uh, of people to be there because at this rate it just doesn't make sense for them. Uh, Carolyn, we we did see a real uprising from the hospitality industry, restaurateurs coming together, and in fact, some of them even defying the orders and reopening. Does the fitness industry have uh, such a tight knit group, and, and would there be a possibility that we see some rogue uh, fitness centers as a result? Yeah, I was talking to one fitness. Uh, facility owner who says he's heard rumors about that and you see it online and they all threatening to to defy the orders the way the restaurant business does what they're saying is though is that they're frustrated that they say the goalposts are constantly being moved for them and uh, they're they are passionate they can they want to be part of the solution in terms of getting people back in the gym and 
And considering, you know, that team kids sports now are on hold until at least March 1st, there's um, a lot of people just wanting to get some kind of physical activity happening. Carolyn, thank you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome. That is Carolyn Curry de Castillo, Global News reporter. And it, it begs the question, something she mentioned, 60 to $100 per hour. You might get, you know, if, you, if you've been to the gym quite frequently, you might get a punch card that, you know, it's not $60 an hour, but if you have 10 visits, they'll give you something for 400 or 499 But these are fees that are on top of your gym membership. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, are you thinking, oh, I have a trainer. This is great for me. Are you thinking, hey, I pay my 25 30 maybe $50 a month. This is, you know, super unfair. What are your thoughts? And I know that you have often saw a trainer one-on-one and yep. she has a studio and it's a one And that's great. But I would think the masses, this is just not good enough at this point. Well, no, and and just, I think it's muddied water again, right? You have so many people asking, you know, why is it not okay for me to go to the gym where they can space us out and, you know, put that distance between, but I can go to the mall and be even closer to people. The kids are still in school. I mean, there are just, it's just another one, another rule that just doesn't really make sense when you compare it to all the others. Well, and we want to bring back normalcy. And we've talked on this program time and time again, again about the importance of physical fitness and mental health and how we you know this is the time where our mental health has been hit perhaps harder yes. than anybody in this generation or and beyond this is something we need we got a texter that said why don't the personal trainers lower their cost for covid well, that's because the personal trainers, this is what they do for a living. Well, and they also have to pay the gym facility they where they Absolutely. do their one-on-one training unless they're going to your house, but they have to pay out of their... Th- and they also have to make a living. And they can't come to your house right now either. No. So, the, you know, lots of questions on that. You know, the the gym facilities, the hockey, the, the restaurants hopefully will open. But again, you know, we all wait to see February 8th and just make sure that the numbers don't climb in the meantime. As we still wait. 709 on the morning news. Delays in both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine shipments means Canada's timeline for herd immunity looks to be getting further and further away. So when can we expect to get shots into the arms of the masses? Jason Kindrachuk, an assistant professor and Canada Research Chair in Emerging Viruses at the University of Manitoba, joins us now with his take on the issue. Good morning to you, Jason. Good morning, guys. Uh, good morning to you. It seems like, you know, more and more every couple of days we hear about, you know, a bit of a hiccup, a bit of a, a speed bump, if you will, in uh, getting these vaccines and getting the shipments that we've uh, put our money down on in our nation. So how far behind are we going to be with these delays that we've heard about over the past couple of weeks? Yeah, it's a great question, right? So listen, I think that there certainly are going to uh, to, to be some delay that, that, that we're going to encounter. But at the same time, I guess I, I leverage that with the fact that Johnson & Johnson, as well as Novavax, have put uh, you know their, their requests in for, <clears throat> for authorization from Health Canada. So, you know, I think we, we have the potential that some of those delays may actually be leveraged by these other vaccines. So, you know, I, I think that the, the unfortunate reality is the situation is going to continue to adapt and change probably on a dime. So for us, it's, it's going to be difficult to get a sense of, you know, where are we going to be in two months from now or four months from now in regards to, to vaccination rates. And it's really hard to know, you know, yes, we've got more vaccine companies, you know, in the in the background, kind of waiting to, to get in there to be able to play the game. And we don't know when that will be approved either, right? So it, it does, it just adds more uncertainty, though the prime minister insists all Canadians will be vaccinated if they want it by fall. Is that realistic, though? 
Well, I, I think certainly, you know, I, I'm, I'm optimistic about vaccine doses uh, by, by the fall time in regards to vaccinations. Alyssa, that, that's going to be a massive hurdle. And, and I, you know, I grew up in the prairie, so I want to be an optimist at the best <laughs> times. But it, it does get kind of difficult to see, you know, how we're going to do this in, in the face of, uh, you know, a lot of problems we've already encountered with, with rollout. So I, I think... There are certainly smart people that, that are looking into this and, and trying to strategize on how we're going to be able to achieve it, um, but it's going to be a monumental effort. And we look at the different types and the different applications of these vaccines, some having to be stored at incredibly cold temperatures. Uh, looks like many with the two doses, some just have the one dose required. Is that part of the issue? Because it does depend on exactly how many of each different type of vaccine uh, that we receive. Well, certainly it does, right? And I think we also have to consider, and you know, I've been saying to people for, for a while now, I mean, we've, we've got 30 million people in Canada. So really, the, the population that, that lives between Washington, uh, D.C. And, and New York City um, across a, a pretty massive landmass. So when we start thinking about distribution, uh, this is not necessarily just a, you know, a kind of an easy undertaking. It, you know, we have to consider all of the areas of Canada we have to distribute to, and the fact that we're doing this in the midst of a global pandemic. I mean, this is this is really a you know kind of you know historic times, and and I think we, we are we're going to achieve the things we want to achieve, but there's certainly going to be hurdles as we move forward. As we talk about that concept of herd immunity, uh, immunity, professor, what kind of numbers are we looking at right across the country to make that even a viable option? Yeah, we're, we're, we're thinking high, right? So we, we got to figure in the neighborhood of 60 to 70% uh, of people that, that are immunized. And that's, that's again, it's, it's a monumental undertaking. When we talk about this, we don't have a comparative or kind of a blueprint for COVID outside of what was achieved, you know, during the smallpox and, and polio vaccination campaign. So, you know, I think we have to, you know, kind of appreciate that this is not just, you know, a regular flu clinic that we see year after year. This is actually much, much um, larger and much more strategic. Uh, Professor, you know, the world is uh, super connected. We can, you know, talk to our friends across the world instantly on FaceTime calls and Zoom, and uh, the information is just flowing freely on the Internet. Uh, so is is that part of, you, you think, the frustration of Canadians? I'm reading online here that 8 million people in the UK have received the vaccination. But is it fair to look and compare ourselves to our neighbors across the globe because of their, A, their proximity, like you mentioned, with the U.S. very tight uh, population as far as geography is concerned, but B, that they have factories in their nations? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the big difficulty, right? So we, we just don't have manufacturing capacity in Canada. I mean, certainly there is investment going into it now, but we don't have that ability to, to make vaccines at, in large quantities. So we are relying on the rest of the globe. And yet I'll still say to people, you know, when we think about our vaccination struggles, we have to also consider there are a lot of low and middle income countries that, that are nowhere near even talking about getting vaccine doses. Um, so, you know, yes, we, we want to, you know, be kind of at the, at the front of the pack. Um, from from a national standpoint, but we also have to consider that there is, you know, the rest of the globe too that we still need to get vaccinated to to get COVID uh, under control. You mentioned flu clinics. Do you foresee, you know, a vaccine clinic that might be able to be set up elsewhere, or you know, to be able to have pharmacists giving the shot when we do finally get some more vaccine in our hands in this country? Man, I, I hope so. 
Um, I, I think we, we have to kind of, you know, uh, you know, look a little bit outside the box as far as what we're doing. Certainly, when we start looking at, at rural centers and, and, again, going into northern communities, uh, you know, we, we have to make vaccines accessible for people, requiring people to, to make a, a, take a big lift and, and, you know, come to a required place is difficult. If you can make it accessible, you're probably going to get greater uptake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as far as, uh, you know, the uptake and, and the education is part of it, and we've also heard that, you know, maybe some Canadians won't get it and it just means more vaccine uh, for the rest of us. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, though, uh, to put a point on it, um, should we not be looking at, I know that the Novavax is something we've heard about, that vaccine, waiting for Health Canada approval. Shouldn't we just jump on board with somebody like the UK who has approved it and, and we have a very similar outlook, I would think? Well, I'm, I'm hoping so, and I'm hoping that that's what the strategy is going to be with, with Health Canada. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, our regulatory bodies have been set up because they, they want to have independence in, in how they view things. Um, you know, I, what, let's see what, what the pressure looks like. I think with the mounting pressure, we're likely going to see that, uh, that Health Canada is probably going to be, uh, you know, a, a little bit faster to move on things than they have been in the past. Interesting discussion. We're certainly we're waiting for more vaccine. And I know there are a lot of people waiting to get the shot in the arm. So thanks so much for joining us for this discussion. Take care. Appreciate your time. That is Professor Jason Kinderchuk, Assistant Prof and Canada Research Chair in Emerging Viruses at the University of Manitoba. That's my thought processes. I mean, the UK with Oxford and, and you know, with their, I, I would think they're at par with us when it comes to our health regulations. Maybe so I'm dead wrong. But if they've approved it and they've done their trials, shouldn't we really be able to fast track this and get because it's a different vaccine, a different company, a different factory? I, it, it really it very much frustrates me. Well, and, and to, I agree with you to play the devil's advocate, though. You know, we want Health Canada to make sure that it is safe for us. So hopefully they are hurrying it through, but you still want them to make sure they check all the boxes off, right? Or else we'd be the first ones in line to say, wait a minute. Yeah, and what I'll, happened? What went wrong? Oh, you you let us have this vaccine. Yeah, I'll give you that. And I think that a lot of people who have trepidation perhaps would be a little more at ease knowing that Health Canada had, yeah. had some eyes Fully on approved, it. right? Absolutely. If you want to show the love this month, it being February and all, nowhere does loving like the Calgary Zoo over Valentine's month. And this month, you can certainly show the animals some love. We've got details from Allison Archambault, who's Director of Brand and Engagement at the Calgary Zoo. Hi, Monday. good Monday morning to you, Allison. Happy February, Sue and Andrew. Are you pumped? Because I know you have a ton going on this month at the zoo and the animals are going to love this stuff. We do. So the community has shown us some great love over the past year. We've appreciated the love, the encouragement, and all the extra help. Um, we're going to turn that back around for the amazing community, firstly with uh, discounted admissions. So uh, admissions discounted by $10 for adult and children all throughout the month. There's some special member deals. Uh, for folks wanting to show some love to our animals, there's a couple ways to do it. You can donate to the zoo and donate in the form of a edible bouquet, typically in the form of vegetables. Um, we're going to do a bunch of Facebook Lives this month um, to uh, show folks uh, the animals enjoying those. If you're not feeling the love, you can purchase a bug in the name of your not-so-loved ex, um, <laughs> and we will feed that to our animals, and they will enjoy that just as well as be a mealworm or something like that. Um, if you're not wanting to donate in that way, the wild girl is near our help, uh, and we can uh, bring cell phones down to the zoo just outside of the North Gate. Um, and donate them uh, to help reduce the uh, the mining of Colton and um, which uh, ruins their habitat. 
Allison, what I love about this is you guys could have just hung a whole bunch of hearts up and got some red lighting and, and made it look like Valentine's Day. But you're making it, A, super interactive, and B, people can uh, indeed give back to the animals. So it's kind of win-win, isn't it? It really is a win-win. There's always something to see and do at the zoo. Um, we've got a couple of uh, extra special surprises for folks that are down and around the park um, that uh, we'll be doing in the form of parades. Um, we'll be feeding our animals some extra special uh, treats throughout the month. We're just so grateful for the support the community has shown us. And uh, we also have our Valentine's curbside uh, dinner. So um, we'll uh, have our award-winning culinary team make you uh, dinner. You pick it up, take it home. And uh, one of our amazing chefs even has some uh, tips to help make your evening with uh, your favorite person extra special. Ooh, oh, kind of like animal type tips, I'm hoping. <laughs> um, I love that you guys are doing a lot of things and, and still making it safe and available for us to come to the zoo and still, you know, get outside, enjoy the fresh air and, and experience everything you have to offer inside the gates. We have 125 acres of outdoor pathway systems, lots of room for folks to spread out. We're operating at a 15% uh, visitor capacity, which means that most days it feels like the zoo is all your, your own. Penguin walk happens every day um, at 10 a.m., weather dependent. Awesome. Um, so the penguins don't walk if it's too cold or too warm um, or if it's too windy for their own health and safety. Um, folks need to purchase tickets in advance. Thank you so much, Calgary, for all the love. We're going to turn around and show some back. Good stuff. Timing is perfect, and it sounds like you have a lot on the go. We'll get more info at calgaryzoo.com. Thanks, Allison. Have a great day, everyone. You as well. That is Allison Archambault, Director of Brand and Engagement at the Calgary Zoo.